It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Hey, this is Eric. This message is very personal to me. The fact that Lyde, an island in the Philippines, and Ludi, the strange guy delivering this podcast, sound very similar, just adds fuel to my fire. I'm charged up right now for another battle of Lyde Gulf. After all, we serve the Lord of hosts, and up to this point in history, he is yet to lose. And I don't believe for a second that he is going to start losing now. By the way, the previous episodes in this series on World War II are available at ellersley.com forward slash daily, along with a lot of other things that we've put together to strengthen you in your walk with Christ. We live in such an amazing and important hour of history. Let's not waste it on ourselves. Let's give our all for Jesus. You'll notice that there's something sort of fun in the title uh, today. It's, I've had this, this series of messages that seems to involve my name. Uh, and so I, I feel like there's a, a personalization of this. Because for me, this has been a very, very personal uh, process. We, were, we, we gave the message, remember uh, Liege. And uh, in the German, that's Lutich. In the Ukrainian, I think it's Luti. So it's like, remember Luti. Uh, but uh, what's funny is in that story, it's the operation of the Nazis, Operation Lutich. And it's like, hey, what are they doing with my name? And yet God is going to form what's called a Phelez pocket, or the allies are going to form a Phelez pocket around it and take what the enemy means for evil and turn it to good. And so the end, the allies are going to take Lutich or Liege, uh, Belgium, or uh, Liuti, according to the Ukrainians. And that which originally the enemy tried to sabotage, God is going to redeem. So I don't mind my name being sort of mixed in there as long as there's redemption in the end. And then we had, uh, I think it was called the Submission of Winston. And my middle name's Winston. And uh, so today it's sort of like, oh, and then we also had Eric Ludendorff that popped into the the message, uh, who was one of the leading uh, commanders of the Nazi, well, the Nazis, of the Germans in World War I, and then he's going to be a sponsor of Hitler to take power in Germany. And he's like lugging around my name, I, and it really can, can bother. Uh, you know, if, if you had the same problem in your life, you'd understand. However, there's a redemption, you know, and I, that is, it must be that, you know, I have a name that is German, a middle name that is British, and I'm American. So I have more allied than I do axes uh, at work inside of me, and so we'll go with that. Uh, but this one is uh, just a totally different angle. This is in the Pacific Theater, which we have not spent a lot of time in since the Battle of Midway, uh, which that was before many of you even arrived on campus. So if you weren't even following my World War II series before you arrived for the semester, then the Pacific Theater is a total unknown, uh, maybe, to some of you. And it's interesting because we all have sort of our favorite theaters. And I've talked with various people about World War II, and I always like to ask their favorite theater. And it's, it's not a shock when a lot of Americans and British people really favor the uh, European theater, okay? Sort of the, uh, the Western Front is what it's oftentimes called. And it's where most of our movies have been that we grew up with. Most of the mental pictures we have are in that. And you know, I, don't, I, I did talk with someone the other day who, who was really intrigued by the Mediterranean uh, theater. And I was thinking, that's just not as exciting to me. Uh, and it's, that's what's funny with going with that other message where it's like getting uh, the man, what was it called, fighting under the stage and where the Italian theater, the, the ones that are uh, stuck in the Italian theater are the ones sort of forgotten and overlooked. And then there's the Eastern Front, uh, which is Stalin against Hitler, and it's uh, rather gruesome and dark and unattractive, and I'm not exactly sure who favors that. Uh, that was a very uh, terrible uh, uh, situation to even to look into and study and I'm guessing to be in. Uh, and then the Pacific Theater, where a lot of drama is going to happen with the Japanese attacking Pearl Harbor and then all of the consequential uh, events that are going to take place after that. So we're going to dip our toe into that theater. Uh, just, And it might be even the last time. I, I'm sure I'll go back to it because we're going to have to have uh, VJ Day somewhere along the line here, which I'm not going to give any spoilers of what that is. But the Battle of Ludi Gulf. 
Doesn't that sound uh, like a fun message? The Battle of Ludi Gulf. It's actually a real battle, except for it wasn't uh, spelled Ludi, it was Lite. <laughs> Isn't that just hilarious? How my name just seems to pop up everywhere. Now, if my last name was Jones, I'm guessing maybe I would see it everywhere too. I don't know. Uh, but I'm, I, for whatever reason, I feel very uh, a, a, a kinship with everything that's happening. This is right at the same time, too. So we've been in August, September of 1944, as we've been progressing, we hit, D-Day was in June, just to give you some context, uh, where the Allied troops, after uh, planning for two and a half years, are going to attack the beaches of Normandy, and now they're, they're sweeping in, they, uh, they got stuck at Cane, and they had the Fellas pocket, they took Paris, and now they're sweeping up into Belgium, which is what our Monday message is going to be about, and uh, this one is a long time in coming. It's a very, very significant battle that most of us have never heard of, and that's why I could rename it, and you guys probably wouldn't even know that I'd renamed it. You might have even thought, oh, I bet there was one called uh, Ludi Gulf, the Battle of Ludi Gulf. So it's the Battle of Lydia Gulf, and this is really taking back the Philippines. And there's, there's certain things that are, are dear to me in all of this, and it goes back to uh, some of my, my study of... Uh, Papua New Guinea in, in, in time in, in and around the uh, World War II season, and Darlene Dibler Rose. You guys ever uh, study that? What was the, the name of her book? Evidence Not Seen. It's just a fantastic story. And if you guys have ever heard the audiobook version of that, the reader for that is one of the best readers uh, I have ever heard. And you really feel like she's Darlene Dibler, and she's so lovable, and you want to hug her. Uh, but there is, there's a scene in there that uh, is so uh, jarring as an, as an American to hear, but it's like you have this radio broadcaster in the Philippines that as the Japanese are swarming their islands and he's going to cry out, America, where are you? And then cut off connection and that's the last the radio was heard. And so, you know, Papua New Guinea, that was their source of radio was from the Philippines. And it's like, that's, it's like, America, where are you? And it's going to be years later before America finally has the Battle of Lyte. Uh, was it Ludi Gulf or was it Lyte Gulf? It's, it's similar, so you can easily get them mixed up. <clears throat> but we're taking back the Philippines. I'm laying in bed. It's early, early this morning. I don't know, somewhere around 4.30. Have you ever had it where uh, it usually happens at night when it's dark, where the enemy will taunt and he'll try and intimidate. You guys ever had, uh, had that? And so I'm laying in bed and I, I feel like uh, it's becoming really clear to me, as if it wasn't, this is a funny statement, very clear to me that we're dealing with a very high degree of satanic uh, like I said, how's that new, Eric? Uh, did you not know that this was satanic, what is taking place in our country right now? And yet, it was like more crystalline. I could see it more sharply, the lines being drawn and how the enemy is attempting to blur. And it's like, hey, we need religious freedom for Satanists. I mean, this is literally where it is, is come to now. It's like, say, our nation stands for religious liberty. Well, why don't we have religious liberty for Satanists? It's like, I think you're missing out on the whole point of what this country was formed for. <laughs> And, you know, it's like the very enemy has crept into the living room and has sat down on the couch and stuck his muddy boots up on the, uh, the coffee table, and he says, this is my place now. And I felt a boasting in the air, and it was a diminishment of the body of Christ. Like, do you actually think you can stop me? And I'm not exactly sure how you guys handle that at 4.30 in the morning. Uh, and, you know, but for whatever reason, there I am awake, uh, and it's not really the meditation I was desiring to be having, right? But that's what is in front of me. And long and short, what we need to remember is exactly what this message is. It, it, it never ceases to amaze me how even when the enemy is sort of making his move that God already has a ram in the thicket. In this case, a message in the thicket. The very message that I would want to dish right back would be the battle of Lady Gulf. You see, 
this entire Pacific theater was just a mocking zone for the Japanese to belittle the Americans. You guys are nothing. The British lost all of their naval forces uh, almost immediately after Pearl Harbor. Boom, 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 boom. All their big ships are going to sink. And now the Japanese rule the Pacific. They have this territory. And now they're going to encroach even greater. The, the attack on Pearl Harbor was such a shock, such a betrayal, but it was nursed in the Japanese heart and mind for a long time. And they saw territory that they could gain, and so they wooed America to trust them. And they had a peace agreement with America, a neutrality pact. And they're going to violate that. They're going to even, uh, a little bit before that, give fresh assurances of the fact that they can be trusted. And so they're going to strike at Pearl Harbor. Why would they do that? Because that's where all the naval strength for the Pacific is located. Now what's interesting is at that time in battle, battleships were the great threat. And up to that point in all of naval history, all naval battles were fought basically with battleships. You know, you sort of line up next to each other and go and shoot at each other. You've seen the old movies, right? That is going to change almost exactly at this point in history, and it's going to formally change at a, a battle called Midway, which is well-named because it's midway between like Japan and uh, America. That's why it's called Midway. And so this is going to be a territory that the enemy is going to salivate after, and they're going to say, we want that. We want Midway Island, if we could have that as a base. And so what's going to happen is when the Japanese attack Pearl Harbor, they're going to knock out their battleships, and a lot of them. And it's a very successful raid if your raid was to destroy battleships. However, the thing that they are unaware of and that they don't destroy are what are called aircraft carriers. And so as a result, the Americans still have intact their aircraft carriers. Now, they don't have a lot because up to that point, no one had ever thought, by the way, could you guys get some, uh, a fresh row of chairs? It's good to see you guys. <clears throat> Up to that point, battles were not fought just with aircraft carriers, but that is going to shift. And you're going to see that naval battles from this point forward are going to be accomplished, ironically, in the air. I know that doesn't sound uh, like it makes any sense. You sort of have to study how it's all going to unfold here, but you're going to have these aircraft carriers that are going to go out into the ocean full of planes. And those planes are going to go up with bombs on them and drop them on the ships. So you're going to actually win, not just by going off your broadside, you're going to now drop a bomb on a ship, and that's how you win. And so it's very interesting because even in Midway, the Japanese still have more aircraft carriers, but the Americans still have some. And uh, it's, a, it's a great story in and of itself, and there's multiple sessions that I gave on it, episodes that I gave on it quite a few months ago now. Uh, one's called The Turning Point, which is really powerful. Uh, <clears throat> So we're going to have a flashback to Midway Island. That's June 3rd, 1942. So that's just two, uh, just over two years uh, prior. And this is David against Goliath. And, and in history, this is like one of the classic pictures where you have Japan, who is at this time bloated uh, with confidence. They are so superior. They have never lost anything. And they are making an attack, which is a surprise attack. And there's no possible way that the Americans could know about it. I mean, come on, this is all secret transmissions and everything. And yet, the Americans just happen to have a code book. They actually know the secret communications of the Japanese, sort of like we do. That's, that's one of the things I, I, I meditated upon way back then, too. It's like, strangely, we know exactly what the enemy's up to. We know where he's going to be. We know his tactics because it's the same tactics for the last 6,000 years. We have what's called the Red Book, and that's what it was called. It was called the Red Book. And so we have the red book, guys, on the enemy. We know what he's up to. And though we look weaker, we're David, he's Goliath in the story, and yet God loves the odds. So we have a David against Goliath situation. Now this is actually a drawing from Winston Churchill's memoirs. It's, I, I wouldn't necessarily say it's the easiest to understand. Like when I look at it, you think the white portion on the map is land. It's actually ocean. Okay, so that will help you immediately right there. So you see China up to the uh, upper left, India 
Uh, Siam, isn't that fun to see Siam on the map? Uh, Japan is uh, in Korea or up in the middle top. And then that's uh, Australia at the bottom. That big landmass at the bottom is Australia. And then you have Papua New Guinea. You're going to have the Philippines in there. You've got a lot of stuff going on. There's a lot of islands uh, in the Pacific. And so that hard line, that hard black line in there is, looks like a nose. <laughs> that's the current reach as of Midway Island. That was the current reach of the Japanese uh, naval operations. So before World War II, all that they possessed was Japan. And now they own all of this. They control it. And I mean, no one can even challenge it because you'd have to have an incredible naval force to be able to even try and break through this. And Japan has the strongest naval force in the Pacific right now by far. I mean, the, the Americans can't even touch it at this exact point. Remember, the Americans have just entered the war. The Americans have not been producing military goods. They've been trying to survive. They just are in the Great Depression. They're trying to come out of a depression. This is not a season of strength for America, and Japan is playing upon that weakness. And so this is right where we're at, and I'm going to circle, well, I'm going to give you, well, I should have done this before. You see Japan up there with the big star, and you see sort of their, their outer territory of strongholds of what they've taken and where they've put most of their forces. And then, oh, I was going to circle Midway, but, but I didn't. Okay, Midway is, see the dotted line? Uh, along the top, right under the word Pacific, right under the I in the word Pacific, you'll see Midway. And so that's what they're going to attack. You see the Hawaiian Islands, if you go straight to the right and down just a little, you see the Hawaiian Islands. So the west coast of America is just over there. Do you know that it was a very real threat that the west coast of America would be attacked by the Japanese? We're, I mean, totally ignorant of most of what took place in World War II. We just know we won. Uh, but we don't recognize how uh, difficult uh, this battle was. So at this time, this is a flashback, so we're back in 1942, Japanese exultation was at its zenith. Pride in their martial triumphs and confidence in their leadership was strengthened by the conviction that the Western powers had not the will to fight to the death. Already the Imperial Army stood on the frontiers so carefully chosen in their pre-war plans as the prudent limit of their advance. This was the farthest they had ever dreamed of getting, the Japanese, and they already got there in like six months. And so they're starting to get a little overconfident. Nothing can stop us, is what they're thinking. I want you to put your finger on this, okay? When the devil starts to get momentum, he doesn't know how to stop himself. Uh, it's sort of like greed doesn't know how to stop itself. Sinful propensity does not have restraint, something called self-control. And that's a fruit of the Spirit, if I need to remind us. And so as a result, the devil doesn't have the same restraint that a Christian does, or we could say that God does. And so as a result, when he starts to have momentum, he doesn't know how to stop himself. And you're going to see that with Hitler in the West, and you're going to see that, uh, did I say in the West? That's a funny, in, in Europe, let me just put it that way. And you're going to see uh, it with Japan in the East. So they can't stop. They are so confident. But now in the flush of victory, it seemed to the Japanese leaders that the fulfillment of their destiny had come. They must not be unworthy of it. These ideas arose not only from the natural temptations to which dazzling success exposes mortals, but from serious military reasoning. Whether it was wiser to organize their perimeter thoroughly or by surging forward to gain greater depth for its defense seemed to them a balanced strategic problem. After deliberation in Tokyo, the more ambitious course was adopted. It was decided to extend the grasp outwards to include the Western Aleutians, Midway Island, Samoa, Fiji, New Caledonia, and Port Moresby in southern New Guinea. This expansion would threaten Pearl Harbor, still the main American base. It would also, if maintained, sever direct communication between the United States and Australia. It would provide Japan with suitable bases from which to launch further attacks. Japan is on the offensive. And they are looking, if we were to just pause, boom, right here, push the pause button and say, who do you think is going to win in World War II? Okay, you have Hitler who has not lost a war, a battle in Europe, and he is down controlling Northern Africa. Uh, he's all throughout uh, Europe, all the way up through Norway. Uh, he's moved into uh, Soviet Russia uh, quite dramatically. Uh, and uh, what we have is, an unstoppable force called Hitler. And he's joined by Mussolini, so Italy's in with him. 
And then we have uh, the, the incoming power of Japan and Hirohito, and totally unstoppable. The Americans are on their heels. They have no answer to this dilemma in the Pacific, and it is encroaching upon Hawaii and upon the western coastline. Great Britain is hanging by a thread in all of this. They still have not actually won a battle uh, against these powers. They are just trying to stave them off. So if you're a betting person, where are you going right now? Are you going to go with the allies because we know the history books? We're like, well, of course I'm going to vote ally. Well, I would hope you'd vote ally anyways just because you're loyal. But if you're going to look at it on paper logically, you're going to recognize why a few people would be breaking out in cold sweat. This is a very, very dark time in history. And what you see is a parallel, and that's why I'm bringing it up, a parallel with what I would say is what we see today. If you were a betting person and you want to go with the powers of darkness ruling this country, because, I mean, what signs do you see that it's all being turned backwards? I mean, we did get a a nomination for a Supreme Court justice that actually has values that would represent ours. Hey, hey, there's a pause, there's a light shining in the darkness, but what does one justice do to stave off this? This is a spiritual thing. It's not just a legal thing. This is a spiritual thing, and this darkness has a lot of momentum to it. Uh Yeah, sort of like this. So Winston Churchill continues in his memoirs, they never comprehended the latent might of the United States. You know, I really like that statement. Japan is underestimating something. Everyone thinks, the United States has been playing passive in this whole war so far. Until they were bombed at Pearl Harbor, they're not doing anything. They're sucking their thumb, they're nursing their own wounds, they have a depression, they're divided as a nation, you know, they have their inner squabbles. They can't deal with squabbles on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean. Now suddenly they get hit from the Pacific side and it suddenly becomes real to them. But the Japanese are convinced that the Americans don't have the will to fight. That the Americans will just lay down their weapons and say, we surrender. They're convinced of this. You know, if you were to ask and pull the powers of darkness, don't you get the idea that if you brought up, some, like you can just imagine a satanic meeting, and they're like, well, what about the church of Jesus Christ? Aren't you scared of that? And you can just hear the howling laughter of the enemy. It's like, we have them right where we want them. They're asleep. Okay, they're underestimating the latent might of the Americans, okay, in World War II. Could it be possible that the enemy is underestimating the latent might of the church of Jesus Christ? It's okay to get stirred up a little. They thought still at this stage that Hitler's Germany would triumph in Europe. They felt in their veins the surge of leading Asia forward to measureless conquests in their own glory. Thus they were drawn into a gamble. So, oh, there's my picture where I circle midway. So after all that work of trying to show you midway, it, pokes, it pops up onto the screen after all. So they're going to go after Midway Island. The story is a grand one. This is the fighting strength at Midway. Just to give you an idea, this is basically the naval fighting strength in total of the American side. Okay, They sent a few up uh, to the north to, you know, as a blind to make uh, Japan think that they were believing their, uh, their false movements. However, they have three aircraft carriers compared to the four that are just coming to Midway. Okay, Japan has more than that, but they're just bringing four to Midway. And America technically only has two. One of them was damaged, and they're going to, and it's like not going to be ready for like oh, a year. And they're like, we need it ready in, you know, two days. And so it has a big hole in the middle. Uh, and they're still going to put it out to sea. And so, zero light carriers compared to two carriers, zero battleships compared to seven battleships, seven heavy cruisers compared to 10, one light cruiser compared to three, 15 destroyers compared to 14. Say, hey, we got the advantage on the destroyers. (laughs) This is not looking good. Okay, this is a David against Goliath. This is a massive armada that is, by the way, is ready for war, is trained for war, is, is, has the, has the, uh, the blood pumping already, the pillow warmed. They're used to victory. The Americans haven't won anything. 
okay? And they feel vulnerable. They feel fragile. And they, they're going against a, a, an opponent that has a reputation of triumph. I mean, that's pretty intimidating. Sound familiar today? In other words, we've got a David and Goliath situation today, too. Yeah, the odds aren't looking good. And as I was saying before, Wade McCluskey is going to make the box turn. He's going to find the Japanese. We're going to bomb. We're going to totally destroy the uh, naval powers in the Pacific in, in, at Midway in this battle. It is an extraordinary story for a different time. You can go back in, in the series to hear it. But this is going to start something. Now, Pearl Harbor, this is a response to Pearl Harbor Isoroku Yamamoto says, I fear all we have done is awaken a sleeping giant and fill him with a terrible resolve. Edward Gray, this is a very fascinating quote. The United States, this is, this is actually before the bombing of Pearl Harbor. The United States is like a gigantic boiler. Once the fire is lighted under it, there is no limit to the power it can generate. You know, I'm going to give you a, a quote. We'll just call it the scriptures. The church of Jesus Christ is like a gigantic boiler. Once the fire is lighted under it, there is no limit to the power it can generate. I really am not just about America in this story. What it symbolizes is what I'm interested in. I see the movement of darkness. Japan is a nation who worships its emperor. America, with all its foibles and flaws, at this time in 1942 was still a nation, one nation under God, <laughs> that worshiped Jehovah, Jesus. And so as a result, you're going to see a battle against evil and good here. And you're going to see good triumph. You're going to see the same thing happen in Europe. There is a defined evil that literally wants to quash all that is good and right. And we see it. I mean, it is, it, it's an evil. Even Hitler himself would call it the voice, capital V, that would lead him, that would speak to him and tell him what to do. Okay, that's not healthy, people. Yeah, and this is what was marshalling its strength together, uniting into an axis power against all that was good and lovely in the world. What does a victory at Midway Island and two years of military buildup bring about? Now, just to give you some, some idea of this, it takes about 18 months to build an aircraft carrier. That's a, that's a long time. Okay, so that's one aircraft carrier, 18 months of work. Now, what you're going to see is so shocking. Like, Churchill has no words to describe it when he sees what America is going to suddenly begin to do. America is awakened, and America is going to turn into this massive manufacturing plant, unlike the world has ever before seen. And it is going to go from being weak and being on the defensive, fighting to save its life, to suddenly a juggernaut in the Pacific Ocean. Okay, now how, how, did, how did that happen? Well, they had to be awakened. So Winston Churchill, the organization and production of the United States were in full stride and had attained astonishing proportions. So this is going to be basically uh, October of 1944. So now present day. So if we're in a movie, you would say present day. And had attained astonishing proportions. A single example may suffice to illustrate the size and success of the American effort. In the autumn of 1942, only three American aircraft carriers were afloat. A year later, there were 50 and I don't think most of you understand how significant that is. These are aircraft carriers. They take 18 months to build, supposedly. <laughs> and so only a year later, there were 50 of them. And by the end of the war, 1945, there were more than 100. Okay, now, no nation on earth can keep up with this. If you were a nation, you had four of them, you would feel like you dominated the ocean. The Americans now have, at the end of the war, over 100 aircraft carriers. It's like, anyone else want to pick a fight with us? This is astounding. Churchill, I mean, Great Britain, had, going into World War II, had the strongest military, and they've always had. Historically, Great Britain has always had the strongest military, sorry, strongest naval force in the world. 
That's their historic position because they're an island nation. They want to protect it. So you look through war history, you're going to see the naval forces of Great Britain. Churchill was over the Navy in World War I, so he knows Navy, right? He has no words to describe what he's seen built. He's just glad they're an ally <laughs> because this is unprecedented. So by the end of the war, there were more than 100. This achievement had been matched by an increase in aircraft production, which was no less remarkable. So sorry this map isn't very good. I was struggling to find a map easily. I didn't have enough time to really either make one for myself or to uh, find a better one. So all of that uh, yellow is occupied territory by the Japanese. And so as a result, what you're going to see is this movement in, in the Philippines. I think I circled it. This is, uh, it's not a very good color for it. You see that green circle? I, I was trying to pick a color that would stand out. It stood out on my computer. It didn't, doesn't stand out on the screen here. But that's going to be uh, Light A Gulf, okay? It's actually right smack in the middle, strategically in the middle of the Philippines. This is the access point that they have defined has the least amount of fortifications, and they are going to hit it and hit it hard. So I just want you to see the shift of power that is taking place. When this sleeping giant is awakened, and this is just what is arriving at Light A Gulf, okay? So you're going to notice that all the red, because I, I, I bold and, and make red the numbers that are the biggest. So it's eight to one on aircraft carriers, eight to three on light aircraft carriers, 18 to two on escort carriers, 12 to seven on battleships, 15 to 14 on heavy cruisers, nine to six on light cruisers, and 166 to 35 on destroyers. <laughs> it's sort of like, any questions? And you were saying you wanted to fight with us? I mean, this is like such a response of a nation. This nation is going to be stirred, but there is something that has a potential here to do so much more than just suck its thumb and nurse its wounds during a Great Depression. We have been in a Great Depression as the Church of Jesus Christ. And in a sense, the best thing that can happen for us is the bombing of Pearl Harbor. The best thing that can happen is that we would be stirred and awakened from our slumber to recognize that we were not built to just isolate ourselves into our own little world of self-centeredness, but that we were put here for such a time as this to stand for the cause of righteousness. So just look at this, total production in World War II. This is, now if you study production in World War II, it takes about two years to even get to full production capabilities. The Japanese have been in full production capabilities long before World War II even starts because they know that they're going to war. And so as a result, the, the Americans have not even started their system, which takes a long time typically to get going. America is going to break every rule of productivity in World War II. They're going to go from zero to 60 in a matter of months, where they're going to get this juggernaut, this boiler going. And so, I mean, they're going to produce 99 aircraft carriers during that span of time from 1941 to 1945. I mean, that's just extraordinary. And you see 30 are produced by the Japanese. Well, who do you think is going to end up winning this uh, when that keeps happening? And the Americans, by the way, they have a lot more people <laughs> than the Japanese have. In other words, you have a lot more soldiers to draw from. And like I was saying before, you got some big farm boys uh, out of the Midwest that uh, have a desire to get their hands on a few Japanese. And so you have this, this force, which is, unprecedented, and if it would awaken. Okay, now the whole reason I'm saying that is not to blow a trumpet for America. It's to give a symbol of something. The church of Jesus Christ is being underestimated right now. And the devil thinks he's got us. I mean, I don't even know if the liberal side of things even recognizes what the true church is. You know, I saw a clip, I think it was yesterday, talking about how... Uh, they, they were criticizing this person saying, I think it was the Supreme Court nominee, saying she's not a Christian because uh, she doesn't see the woman's uh, valid right to choose and she's going to threaten it. That's not Christian. It's like this redefinition of Christianity. I don't even think they know what Christianity is. Okay, so it's like, hey, what if the true church were to rise up? 
what would happen? <laughs> I, I just want to find out. Oh, Lord, let me see it. It's like, what, Anna and Simeon, they just want to see the Christ child. I want to see the body of Christ function as it was intended to function. I mean, it's pretty amazing. Look at the, uh, you see the 377 destroyers to 209 destroyers, 422 convoys escorts to 189, 232 submarines to 213 submarines. Look at this one, 300,000 airplanes to 75,000 airplanes. World War II is gonna be defined by the air. Whoever wins the battle of the air wins the war. And so it's not just the sea, because the sea battle is gonna be won in the air. You have these aircraft carriers and they're stocked full of airplanes. And that's how you're going to win it. And that's how European battle is, is going to be won as well. It's going to be won in the air. Well, who's producing airplanes unlike anyone else? The United States, and they are so far superior to the Japanese airplanes, so far. So not only do you have so many more of them, but they are so much better. The technology, the radar, which the Japanese didn't even have yet, are going to be fully stocked in these newly built machines. Yeah, I don't know which side you want to be on, you see, remember how I pushed a pause button earlier and I said, right now we stop and which way are you leaning? You see, that's when a lot of people side with darkness because they want peace in their life. You're like, hey, look, I'm just gonna be correct with the, the one that I think is going to be victorious. And you end up siding against the allies. You end up siding against, in, in our case, righteousness, against Jesus. Don't go with the culture. Don't go with the downward slide just because you think it would make you fit in better, maybe make you more comfortable, maybe keep your monetary system more stable. Yeah, you could lose your job if you stand for Jesus right now and what is true. Stand with Jesus. In the end, you'll understand his productivity is so far exceeding that which the enemy can do. And that's what the Bible is gonna teach us too. That's what's interesting. Winston Churchill, the Battle of Light Gulf was decisive. The Americans had conquered the Japanese fleet. They are going to so devastate the Japanese fleet in Lighted Gulf that basically they can't even function anymore. So that which once ruled the Pacific is going to literally go down to its dregs. The only weapon they have is kamikaze, kamikaze pilots now, which, by the way, the Allies weren't very excited about. Uh, those are hard to stop by the way, someone who doesn't care about their own life and is gonna fly right into your ships. They're, they're a fairly effective weapon. But that's literally the only weapon they have left to fight this massive naval force of the Americans. Long should this victory be treasured in American history. What's funny is most of us have never even heard about it. I didn't go into the battle. It's, it's extremely complex. All these naval experts will describe it and they'll argue about if Halsey should have gone on Bull's Run and they have all this like detail and I'm like, you know what? I don't think any of us really care. No wonder none of us know about it. It's too confusing for us. And so as a result, we lose a, a, a battle that even sort of has my name in it. I mean, come on, and it's a great battle. I've had to put up with the fact that Hitler had Operation Ludich, but here we have, you know, the Battle of Ludi Gulf over there, and it's this tremendous victory that Americans should never forget. Come on, guys. In the following weeks, the fight for the Philippines spread and grew. By the end of November 1944, nearly a quarter of a million Americans had landed in Lide, and by mid-December, Japanese resistance was broken. The Philippines are back in allied hands. The swagger of the spirit enabled. Oftentimes I've, I've called it the, the swagger of the freshly anointed. David has a ram's horn of oil pulled up, poured on his head and suddenly he's a different sort of shepherd. Still a shepherd. You know why he's sent back out to the sheep when he was anointed as king? You know, definitely makes you wonder if his dad and brothers thought this whole thing was real. However, he's now shepherding with the Spirit of God. So a lion comes up and grabs one of his sheep, and he goes after it and breaks its jaw and says, thank you, that doesn't belong to you. Then a bear tries the same, and then a giant. These were David's sheep, and he's anointed to do something that is superhuman. You see, we as the church of Jesus Christ have been given something that the world cannot mimic and cannot come up with some technological advancement to match. It is a strength 
that is otherworldly, that trumps and negates every single earthly technology, earthly strength. You could put American manufacturing to the test against God, and it's like building a tower of Babel. He'll just knock it down. You see, God is greater than everything the enemy could muster together. And he desires to do his working, not through just clouds and uh, winds, but through a church. He has chosen a weak vessel to carry his mighty, we'd say nuclear power. And he distributes this power in a very unusual way with things like servanthood and love and care and kindness. Ah, God, this is when you want to bop him in the nose. And he does. He crushed the serpent's head. He did. There's a, there's a violent aspect to all of this. But oftentimes it is done and accomplished in and through submission in and through what appears on the outside to be weakness. So when you study war, it's sometimes hard to discern how we battle because what you see is harshness against harshness in war. You see Japan lash out and then you see America bring retribution. Yeah, and in the big picture, that's true with what's gonna happen in the kingdom of heaven. But how the battle is fought is different. How we wage war is different than how the enemy wages war. And so the enemy is building up their aircraft carriers and their light carriers and their destroyers and all this, and we build up different weapons. We have a different war chest, and it's not the weapons of this world. It is the weapons of an eternal kingdom. And the, if you take a sword from the, the heavenly war chest and you swing it, it doesn't matter what the enemy tries to hold up against, it just slices right through it. You see, if we will go to our heavenly war chest, we'll find that we have something so much better, so much more powerful. But we're not gonna go to a heavenly war chest until we are awakened from our slumber. Now, I know in here we could say, well, of course we're awakened. I'm at Ellerslie. What do you think I'm doing? I'm not saying that we're asleep in this room, but I don't know if you feel it. It's like there's a greater awakening that we need. It's like we're awake but not fully awake. You ever had that sort of like 4.30 this morning for me? I'm awake but not fully awake. And as a result, when you're half awake, the enemy will come in and his voice sounds more intense and robust than it really is. When you're fully awake, the enemy doesn't get away with that nonsense. When you're in the light, darkness has no ability. It's when you're in that half awake state that you feel more vulnerable. What does a victory at the cross in 2,000 years of military buildup bring about? So if, if we were to say we didn't know Christian history and we were to just say, okay, Jesus died on the cross, read the book of Acts, and then now where should we be 2,000 years later? If the boiler was awakened and we're like creating the productivity of the kingdom of heaven, we would have won the earth over a long time ago. Uh, but we haven't. Instead, we're in the Great Depression sucking our thumb and nursing our wounds. Something has happened to us. We are still the boiler, and we need to be awakened. And sometimes it's through tragedy and difficulty, like a Pearl Harbor bombing, that we need to be stirred to our senses afresh. The Americans knew that Hitler was bad. They knew it, but they didn't think it was any of their business. Whenever we think that the, the travesties of the world out there is none of our business, we're pulling a 1939, 1940 America where we're gonna stay in our depression. You know what's gonna lift America out of its economic depression? I know this is, sounds so weird. A war where it turns outward and begins to fight for what is righteous. That is what is going to stir the economy of America. Figure that one out. That is one of the strangest statements we could make. And yet we're going to have this burgeoning economy that is going to burst forth out of World War II. Okay, that's strange. Who would have ever thought that turning outward would make you strong? Mm-hmm. Doesn't that sound like a spiritual principle right there? Hebrews 11.30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. You know that there's a history that we've been grafted into. It's 
It's called the great cloud of witness that has gone before us, that have been the underdog, that have risen up in faith and actually shown the power of God. You know that what we have is a bunch of brick makers in Israel that were slaves. Yeah, it was dark, and it looked like the enemy had the upper hand, and God is going to bring a deliverance, and then he is going to build that troop into a juggernaut, and they're going to take the entire land of Canaan. Not only that, but the land of the giants before it. And anyone that stands up against this juggernaut will fall. What you're going to see is in the Old Testament a picture. Judges 15, 14 through 15. When he, Samson, came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting against him. Uh Uh-oh, guys, Philistines, do you know who you're shouting against? Then the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. You know that it's very likely that, uh, that Samson did not look all muscular? Why would I say that? Because why would Delilah try and con him into giving his secret for strength? If, if he had muscles that were bigger than Eric Ludi, you would recognize where his strength comes from. However, they don't know where his strength comes from. And I mean, if you were a whole bunch of Philistines, would you come shouting against a guy that was as big as this room? You know, it's just like flexes and they go bouncing off. No, you, you would be like, uh. So when he, Samson, came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting against him, then the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. That's a key line in the whole story. And the ropes that were on his arms became like flax that is burned with fire and his bonds broke loose from his hands. He found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and reached out his hand and took it and killed a thousand men with it. Whoa! Okay, that just happened. What we see is we see that the Spirit of God, when he comes upon his people, wins. Even when the odds are against it, he wins. Judges 7, 20 through 21. So this is Gideon's uh, story. Then the three companies, he's going to break up his 300 into three groups of 100. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pictures, pitchers. They held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands for blowing. And they cried, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And every man stood in his place all around the camp. And the whole army ran and cried out and fled. This is a massive host the Midianites. I mean, just massive host. And they are going to be struck dumb with terror. And they're going to imagine such a massive force coming against them. And yet it's just little Gideon. No, it's a massive force. It's called God. You see, they have reason to be afraid. God is fighting for his people. You see, when God goes before his people, it is a mighty host. But lest Gideon would think it was himself and the 300 would believe it was them, God had to pare them down. God has to purposely allow a certain weakness to come upon us so that we know who it is that fights for us. 1 Samuel 17, 45. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. You come to me with four aircraft carriers, 17 destroyers, seven battleships. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. So that's, in a sense, what was going on inside of me at 4.30 this morning when the devil's mocking. It's like, well, if you're wondering what I bring, yeah, I'm rather weak, and I'm going to agree with you very quickly, devil, on that one. Yeah, Eric Ludi isn't much of a threat, is he? Unless, unless... The Spirit of God dwells within me. And if it's true that God Almighty lives inside of this body, which I know is not that impressive, watch out, O devil. You see, this is greater. That which is in me is greater than anything outside of me. Anything that is attempting to come against me is not going to be able to prosper in its way because greater is he that is marshalling the troops within me. 2 Kings 6, 14 through 17. The king of Syria sent horses and chariots and a great army there, and they came by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, and there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. So in this story, I know you guys are familiar with it. I think Nathan went through it just a little bit ago. 
But you have a very dark situation. You have Elisha and his servant. Now, I want you to imagine that the servant is sort of our natural man. It's the first one to see the circumstances. And then you have your second eyesight. You have the, the, the response of heaven that God wants to reinforce us with. You're surrounded. In the external realm, this doesn't look good. In the external realm, I would say that America looks like it doesn't have a hope and a future. I mean, if I try and play out trajectories of where we're going right now, it's not pretty. And it's not pretty for any of us that would dare stand against it. There's words of revolution, of actually taking people out of our culture that are actually standing against the forward movement of that which is obvious and right to the, uh, the people that have enlightenment. Okay, now that, that's never been good. Okay, I know enough history to recognize that. It's like, that's the same brand of cologne <laughs> that every uh, revolutionary has held that wipes out whole sectors of society. I mean, this isn't good. So, yes, on paper it looks like the Americans are going down. Yeah, the British are going down on paper. But something is going to shift there is going to be a supernatural stirring and an awakening. That is what we ask for. Right now, we ask for God to awaken us first. Then, he can start awakening others. But if we're not fully awake, well, how can we be praying for others to be fully awake? So in the, when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So he answered, this is Elisha, do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Do you see it? You see, when you're in your half-awake state and you don't see that, you can be bullied. You can be intimidated. But when you do see that, you start marching forward into the darkest of circumstances, even though the world's like, no, no, hey, where are you going? Looney, don't go there. No, I, I'm going in the power of the Holy Spirit. Don't, don't fear for me. Fear for them. Don't, don't fear for Eric Looney. Don't fear for the church of Jesus Christ. <laughs> no, 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 no. Fear for those that stand against the church of Jesus Christ. You need to care about them. They're the ones that are in trouble right now. I'm not in trouble. I know where I stand. I'm in agreement with the Most High God right here, right now. But they are standing against his truth in rebellion to his word. We need to care about them. Let's hit Lighty Gulf and take back the territory. There's territory that has been stripped. I mean, there's a heritage even in this country that is just like totally just been snarfed up to the point where many of us would feel like, hey, it's lost. You know that before the first great awakening and the second great awakening, you had a similar dynamic? I don't know if it was as, as extreme. I didn't live back then. But from what I understand, the world had gotten pretty dark over here in North America and yet God awakened us. I know we're not deserving it. I know we've not done anything worthy of having the Spirit of God revisit us like in, in such a way. But we can ask for it because we know God delights to do this. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-6, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. 1 John 4, 4. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. I call these my big three. You'll hear me say these three over and over and over again when I'm in a battle situation. I will exhort my own soul with these three statements. 
Isaiah 54, 17, no weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me declares the Lord. Do you know your heritage as a servant of the Lord? That no weapon fashioned against you shall succeed. Romans 8.31, what then shall we say to these things? I love that in context of this. All of this, have you heard what I've been saying? What shall we say to all these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? Maybe a better translation is who could possibly stop us? If God is on our side, if the American manufacturing system is behind us, (laughs) it's just a matter of time. If God be for us, which is so much superior to the American manufacturing system, if God be for us, who can possibly stand against us? Awaken, O church of Jesus Christ, and remember your heritage. Remember what you represent. You don't represent your own name. You don't represent a country. You represent a king. And he's not just a king. He's a king of kings. You represent the name of Jesus Christ in this earth. Luke 10, 19, behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. There is a preservation to the saints of God. And I don't mean your physical body because the same Jesus that's gonna say this is gonna die on a cross and all of his disciples are gonna be martyred. So nothing shall by any means hurt you. What do you mean? Nothing shall separate you. There's a connection that you have spiritually with God and God and the enemy cannot reach you there. You are preserved in his grace. But we have a job to do and we've been given authority to do it. And that authority is over all the authority, which the word for power there is going to be a legal power, over all the legal authority of the enemy. We actually have the authority. It's been given to us. Isaiah 59, 19. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. If you look at this with uh, the Pacific Theater, you have all sorts of odd things from the west and the, uh, the glory from the rising of the sun. If you know the history of Japan, that's even an interesting statement. But listen to this. When the enemy comes in like a flood, The Spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. That's a fact. When the enemy comes in like a flood, remember, he can't stop. Floods have a tough time stopping. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will raise up a standard against him. What do you expect right now? A God response. That's what we expect. God will not be silent, there will be a response. But the way he responds is different than we oftentimes expect him to. We expect him to just send down lightning from heaven. Sometimes what he does is he sends down lightning into our souls. And he stirs us up. That's the first thing we request. God, don't just strike down our enemy and leave us asleep. Awaken us. And we'd even like to see our enemy set free from their bondage before you strike them down. In other words, there is a season of mercy that we are in and our enemies can still be gained for the kingdom of heaven. When they have hardened against them, then Lord Jesus, please, would you please deal with Hitler and get him out of there? I mean, that's what you see the Christians going through in World War II. It's like, uh, this guy needs to go. (laughs) I mean, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a pacifist, is going to actually participate in a plot to kill Hitler. Of all things, what a strange story that is. However, that's a rare situation in history. I don't want to make that sound like that's a normal thing to have happen. Hitler's aren't every day. However, we as the saints of God, we do our winning in this battle differently. Our weapons are odd to the world. They don't understand them. Prayer doesn't make any sense to someone who doesn't believe in God. And yet we understand its power. The latent power of the church of Jesus Christ has been underestimated today by the enemy who should know better but he doesn't we should we need to allow god to do what he must inside of us father 
Awaken your church. Stir us unto action. Please. It's in the precious name of Jesus that we ask this. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. And our weekend service is streamed at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.